0: Ahoy, Mets fans! Welcome to episode 257 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore. Thank you for joining us. And before we go any further, I want to wish a fond farewell to Eric Simon, the managing editor of Amazing Avenue for well, since the beginning. And Eric is moving on, and uh, a person you know and love, my co-host Chris McShane, will be taking over. And I know Chris is going to do an amazing job, but wanted to just send Eric off in style. So thank you, Eric, for everything. I hope you get all the uh, new robot parts you need. <laughs> I think I a funnier way to say that. Can't do it. Um, Eric's a robot, for those that don't know. So anyway, uh, I am joined by our new managing editor, Chris McShane, as well as Steve Schreiber to discuss the uh, Terry Collins situation, to think up some potential new Mets managers, and more. So uh, Enjoy. Well folks, another Mets season is in the books. We are here tonight uh on the night of the National League wildcard game to discuss the Mets managerial opening uh, after Sunday's finale, Terry Collins resigned as Mets manager after six full seasons as their skipper and uh for the first time since Sandy Alderson's first off season he is looking for a manager. Before we get to the managerial search, though, why don't we just talk about the Terry Collins era sort of uh, in a nutshell? Uh, Chris and St- – oh, I, sh- I should mention uh, Chris and I are joined tonight by our friend Steve Schreiber, Green Man, Green Ricky. Call him what you will. Um, <laughs> what do you guys uh, – how do you guys think about the uh, the Terry Collins era overall? Steve, why don't we start with you?
1: Excellent. Uh, I would I would love to talk about the Terry Collins era. I know you would. I <laughs> – i i am I'm glad no, no offense to Terry Collins, the man i I'm very glad that it's over um you know there, i I feel like for a while I went back and forth kind of on what what they had with him uh you know between you know they you know you heard how he was good in the clubhouse, but then you saw the moves that he made on the field and it's sort of like the the you know there there's sort of a weird kind of dichotomy between those two things. Um, and then just sort of felt like over time, the, the talk about, you know, his clubhouse influence per se was sort of, I don't want to say made up, but, you know, talked up in a way. Um, and I think his, his on the field moves, uh, particularly this year, um, you know, just really bordered on, uh, the, the, uh, the uh awful <laughs> to to put it you know put it put it bluntly uh, so uh you know i think i think um with with such a bad year in the books now uh it's definitely the right time to move on and uh you know terry's he's 68 now um so you know he's not going to be here forever anyway uh, so uh i think you know this is a good good point for them to find somebody hopefully some new
2: young blood
0: Chris, what what do you think of the of the Collins era? Uh
2: overall, as an era, it you know, it's it kind of encompassed both the uh the good and the bad. Uh you know, the, the Mets in their history have had these short spurts of success. Uh you know, uh, in the span of like 3 to 5 years, they've been a good team and they've been bad for you know, 7, 8, 10, um, sometimes a little more than 10. <laughs> um, but it, generally, at least like once per decade, they're good. So, you know, he comes in and he takes over a team that was objectively bad uh, and remained that way. You know, bad to bad to mediocre, um, I would say, as they sort of sniffed closer to 500 um, a couple of points along the way before they got to be a good team. Um you know, it's it's crazy to me. And this is one of those things where, uh, you know, it's like when I remember a, a concert that I went to, and I think it happened two years ago, and it was seven. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, it's crazy to me that he managed over 1,100 games and had the longest tenure of any manager in Mets history. And, you know, this isn't a franchise that had, like, George Steinbrenner, for better or worse. Um Making decisions about managers and, and firing people compulsively. Uh, you know, it's, it's, there have been plenty of changes over the years, but I don't know. It just, it, it struck me when that happened, and that was a while ago now, that was very early in the season, um, that he had become the, you know, managed the most games for the Mets. That kind of, kind of surprised me a little bit. But yeah, I mean, overall, uh, you know, one of the things, I think it was Howie Rose, who had said, and I was just my TV must have still been on SNY from the last game I tuned into, so I you know I turn it on and the uh, the cable box is still on that channel, and it's Howie Rose talking about Terry Collins, and this is definitely all films I think this summer, but certainly before it was official that he was out as manager, and Howie was saying, you know, he's one of he's one of five men who. Taking the Mets to a World Series and nobody can take that away from him, um, which you know that 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 is definitely an accomplishment. Uh, sure. That, that uh, he has, hey. and
0: <laughs> how much should he what? do to get well, the Mets to <laughs> the World Series?
2: Uh, he was there. <laughs> but that that's that's he, he, sort of like a hypothetical. Right. No, I, how I, much does I, any I know, manager? I
0: know, I know. I know.
1: He was. He was literally present yeah. at the moment, <laughs> um, <you know. laughs>
2: But yeah, I mean, to me, it, it's just sort of you, you had the the up and the down, and it's you know, it's funny. Bobby Valentine didn't last; he lasted a, a, a long time. Um, he, he didn't last quite as long uh, as Collins did. But you think of him, I think, in a little more of a winning sense, which. It, is logical, you know. I mean, you just look at their winning percentages as managers. Valentine, even though the '96, '97 teams weren't good, '98, '99, 2000 was definitely, uh, you know, a more sustained run of success and or dominance. And even 2001. Um, I mean, in
0: 2001, they were still sniffing practices. at the playoffs in mid-September.
1: Right. Yeah, I was going to say that too. Um, they didn't really fall apart until they you know, made all those trades in 2002 and, you know, the the Mo Vaughn, Robbie Alomar, Jeremy Bernitz era.
0: (laughs) Oh, boy, that era. (laughs) I prefer to think of that as the Tsuyoshi Shinjo era, but, you know, that's just me. Of course, of course. (laughs) Uh, You know, my my feelings on on Collins are are relatively simple. You know, I I was never a fan of the way he managed games. You know, I I think that he... uh, you know, he he killed more more bullpen arms than than a split finger fastball, and uh, you know he he really really, especially early on in the center when the teams weren't very good, it would drive me crazy that guys like um, uh, Justin Turner would play every single day, and he was never taking chances with any younger players. He was never. You know, he had the perfect opportunity to evaluate talent, and he would put in every veteran or you know grinder that he had out there to uh, to play in every game, and it used to drive me absolutely crazy. Um,
1: Eric Young Jr.
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: Eric Young Jr. Eric Campbell. Yep. He he
0: liked he liked to see called them baseball players, you know, as opposed to guys who could who could actually you know succeed. Um, but you know. I, th- Collins always seemed to me, especially early on, to be a bit of a humble guy and somebody who was very pleased to be getting a second chance in baseball. Yeah, and I'm as much a sucker for those stories as anybody. So I wanted to like Collins. I wanted to root for him. But, you know, I, I think his in-game strategy and then particularly his post-game comments would always, you know, just irk me. And I would I would wind up being frustrated at, at Collins far more frequently than I was ever – pleased with anything that he did um you know I, I think it could be argued that he that decisions he made in the world series should have led to his firing in 2015 but you know that's just not that doesn't happen I, I'm, I'm aware of that um but overall I'm very happy that Terry Collins era is over as well um I, I I will always you know the 2015 season was one of one of the greatest moments in my Mets fandom and I will always uh remember you know a number of games from that season, but I can honestly say I can't think of one single game that Collins did something where I was like, wow, Terry Collins just won this game for the Mets. I'm sure it happened. I'm sure it happened. I'm sure there was a game or two where he, he made, you know, a brilliant tactical move, even if he didn't realize what he was doing. And, uh... Yeah. You know, won the game for the team, but I, I can't personally remember any of those. Whereas there are plenty of games I watched when Valentine was managing the team, where you would just see these, you know, these these very intelligent, very well thought out moves happening, and just feel lucky that you have a manager. You know, I, I ever watching the Mets play a couple of games against Dusty Baker teams, and just thinking like this is unfair because we have a manager who knows what he's doing, and they have Dusty Baker. You know, and uh, I never quite got that feeling from Terry Collins.
2: Yeah, it's sort of – it's something I think that I've brought up on the podcast before. Uh, the entire concept of a manager is odd to me at this stage. Um, you know, because take somebody like Valentine, who has a great baseball mind, right, and and gets strategy and all that, um, but clearly has a major issue communicating with players and everything. Um that combined, you know, finding the combination of guys who, you know, have that sort of a baseball approach in mind and that ability to communicate, I think is probably very rare and combine that rarity with the, the vantage points. Um, and I, I, know that like MLB is very, you know, cautious about how it treats technology in the dugout and everything. Um, but the, the role itself is odd to me. You know, I, I'm not saying you'd want your general manager to be the guy. But say you had a Bobby Valentine-type guy who was, you know, watching the game from a little bit better standpoint than in the dugout where you're looking at, like, players' feet and up. Um, <laughs> you know, and that, that's, that's been the norm in baseball for a long time. It doesn't really make sense. You know, football coordinators – some are on the field, some aren't. But they, I think, I think it's uniform in football that every team has guys who are elevated a little, so they can take in that perspective, right? Mm-hmm. So this would be extremely unorthodox. The Mets are not going to do this now. This is just me thinking out loud. Uh, but say you had a baseball mind like Bobby Valentine, uh, and he was, you know, somewhere in like the the middle level watching the game, and he's. Making decisions and and communicating them, but you have like a, a more of a bench coach type guy with a prominent role who's the great communicator you know i don't I don't know if that can actually work in practice but i I, I hope that point makes sense yeah
0: i i think i think yeah. there's definitely a different skill set for the perceived player's manager versus the tactical manager
1: yeah. i i never i i sort of thought. Um, You know, similar lines, Chris, but I never understood why teams don't sort of split up the job between the manager and the bench coach. You know, if you hire sort of the player's manager, um, you know, then the bench coach should be a, you know, a tactical guy who really, you know, can can give you sort of an edge, you know, in in terms of, you know, okay, we're going to do this and then we're going to switch this guy out and we're going to make this double switch here. And we're going to, you know, things like that. where, you know, it's like, it seems like most teams, I mean, maybe maybe this isn't the case, but, you know, it seems like at least with the Mets, you know, you just have Terry Collins and you have, you know, some guy, whether it's, you know, Dick Scott or Bob Guerin or, you know, who, you know, I, I guess Guerin has, has sort of a reputation of being a, a stats guy, um, but, you know, I don't know how tactical he is otherwise, you know. And I I sort of I never understood why they didn't, why teams don't you know break down those roles a little bit more if you know if they can because I I totally get it's hard to find that sort of like unicorn guy who's like who can do both yeah you know the the Joe Madden the uh, you know that type of guy who can you know who can both communicate well with the players but also make the good moves.
0: I mean I think part of the reason that you don't see that more often is because I think I'll, you know it's because of who who baseball teams hire as their managers. They hire old school guys who want things done in the old school manner. So you know, try, try to convince uh you know Terry Collins that there should be somebody else making his decisions. You know, how, how many times did you hear him say like, "Well, I make the lineup card around here or some or some, you know, facsimile of that." You know, it's mm-hmm. just finding a a, a manager Without the ego or without the expectation to be that, you know, that total source of information and of uh, decision making prowess, and maybe you'd be more likely to do that. But I just, I don't know. I don't know who in the game right now that's managing would be okay for for, for with that. You know, I I I, I don't know. Yep. I just don't know. Um. So before we wrap up Terry Collins' chat here. Let's each maybe share a, a particular Terry Collins memory. It could be something personal. It could be uh, a game you remember watching. It could be a good memory, bad memory. Give me, uh, give me Terry Collins memory. Chris, we'll start with you.
2: So I will say that I was one of the forty-something thousand people at World Series Game Five, chanting. Uh, we want Harvey. <laughs> so I'd just like to shoulder a tiny that, fraction of that blame. Uh, that, and take... pant,
1: that Pant aged very poorly. With a in
2: about
1: five minutes.
2: <laughs> yeah. So uh, that, that to me is just a moment where I wanted that. I understood it. It didn't work out. And, you know, I... I It's tough to do in hindsight, knowing the way it went. But at that moment in time, I was on the same page as as he was and as Harvey was. Um, But you would have pulled Harvey earlier. Well,
0: I I don't think I would have. In that inning, you wouldn't have pulled him earlier?
2: Oh, oh, oh. Uh, Maybe, yes. Come on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. Probably, yes. I don't know.
1: I, just just to, Chris, you, you weren't the only, or you and the people in the stands weren't the only ones. I, I clearly remember there was a Twitter poll that night, you know, before the that ninth inning started. He um, probably put out by MLB or something. Should Harvey keep, you know, should he stay in or should he go out? And I remember I voted he should stay in because I, you know, I thought he should finish the game. But um, I'm pretty sure the results of that were like 90 to 10 you know that he should stay in the game. So there's a lot of people who, you know, who agreed with that decision at the time, and now in hindsight, you know, change their mind.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah that that was a that, that was a moment for me just because of the magnitude of it and and being on the same page as him. Uh, you know, at least for a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Steve, what about you?
1: Um, yeah, I think uh, the it, you know, and it, it's got to be the um, the the uh, the press the post game conference uh, after uh, the failed uh, Wilmer Flores trade, <laughs> um, where <laughs> where he you know he sat there and he's he's recounting everything that happened with Wilmer crying on the field and you know he's asking the players you know what what happened why is Wilmer crying and you know he got traded and. He did i didn't hear that you know so that whole that whole thing um you know was pretty funny and it kind of uh you know i think at the time it was you know it was so it was such a confusing <laughs> confusing night from what i remember you know between you know all the rumors flying around and then you know the trade was happening and then it wasn't happening and then everybody was you know so happy and everybody was like instantaneously upset you know that it didn't happen and So, you know, it was just kind of a it was a funny moment. It brought a little, I think, levity to it, Um, you know, to see him see Terry kind of like, you know, okay, he's clueless here, too. And, you know, it's not just us, Um, you know, so it it was it was, you know, it's a funny moment. I enjoy that. And that's one I always kind of think of when I think of
0: Terry. Uh, Mine is uh, is is far more uh, more personal than that. In the summer of 2013, my brother moved to Phoenix, Arizona, and I, I flew out to help him kind of get settled in Arizona. And uh, we went to uh, two or three Mets-Diamondback games um, at at Chase Field. Uh, I, I met uh, Kevin Burkhart when we were there. We talked about a place I used to work where he went to college, and we, we we shared a nice little moment. But before one of the games, I was we were sitting in our seats, and Terry Collins came to like the the lip of the uh of the infield and was shouting at somebody and then ran over to our section and was there was I guess a friend of his there and they were trying to talk and I was I was not the nicest guy at this point <laughs> and I was just shouting <laughs> you know Justin Turner has reverse platoon splits right you're aware that Justin Turner hits right handed batters better than left handed batters, aren't you? I'm not the only one who knows about justin Turner's reverse platoon splits am i and i I just didn't stop like he was trying to talk to somebody and for a good five minutes, I was just shouting about justin Turner's reverse platoon splits uh so you know i'm not I'm not super proud of that um but you know it's a very very personal uh moment that's also uh Mike Baxter walks in the walked in the field and I yelled Mike from Whitestone and he pointed at me and went, yeah, dude. So <laughs> I was going to ask, did Terry acknowledge you nope, at all? No, it was as if I was shouting into the void. that didn't even look at me. Nice. So.
1: <laughs> Brian, you're, you're my hero for that. Uh, Thank you.
0: Uh, you're <laughs> welcome. I, I,
1: <laughs> because I, I shouted that many, 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 many times. Yeah. And he, he heard it. He heard it as many times as he heard. You, <laughs> yeah, <but>.
0: exactly.
2: <laughs> um, the, that does remind me, you know, having been at spring training for a few years in, in, in a row there, um, Terry Collins was along with Rafael Montero. Mm-hmm. One of a few guys who, and time you, you snap like 2000 photos of people just, you know, doing their work and, uh, in motion, you're going to get some, some moments, uh, like this, but he was one of uh, two, uh, that I can specifically remember having a shot where like his eyes are looking directly into the lens. (laughs) And it's weird for guys who, who like are in the business of being seen. And I guess it's just like this human nature kind of thing, you know, that they all have moments of like, why are you taking my picture right now? You know, but like, that's, that's the life you're in, but it's just funny to see it. And it's, it's funny that he and Rafael Montero who, you know, from all accounts, uh, may not have gotten along so well uh, at certain points of their tenure together. Uh, were had that in common, so Cripes. there you go. You you brought out a yes, exactly. <laughs> Mark Craig just screwing up the whole universe with a really good report. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, and we have his we have his Twitter nemesis on the podcast. With us. We do, yes.
0: <laughs>
1: That's right. I I am here.
3: Do you, do you, do you want to hear
2: the kicker, Steve?
1: Uh, well, I, I That's mm, nah, okay. okay cool. I'll 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 say it, save it for uh, you know whenever uh, whenever I see Mark in person. Well, I, I was, I, what I was going
0: to say was we were going to try and have Mark on the oh. podcast tonight.
1: <laughs> oh, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's all right. Though. I guess he. I guess he didn't. I guess he didn't want to be here. He's, he's a little, little afraid of the Green Man. <laughs>
0: exactly. <Yep. laughs> I mean, who isn't? You know. Let's be fair. You're an intimidating guy. Um, I, I
1: know. I, I know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so let's let's turn our attention to Terry Collins' successor as the Mets manager. Uh, a few names have been floated. There's reportedly up to ten names that have been uh, that have been floated internally, uh, but six of them have sort of been uh, discussed publicly. Those six are Robin Ventura, Kevin Long, Alex Cora, Joe McEwing, Bob Guerin, and Chip Hale. Uh, I have a variety of feelings about some of these guys. Uh, You know, almost all of them to a man, actually all of them to a man, have some sort of Mets connection. You know, Ventura, Cora, and McEwing all played for the Mets. Uh, Long, Guerin, and Hale all have coaching experience with the Mets. Uh, I remember when... Collins was hired. I was really on the higher Chip Hale um, train at that point. I, I I think that that train has lost some of its power <laughs> in the uh, right. in the intervening years. But he was certainly my my pick for that 2011 vacancy or 2010 vacancy rather. Um, is there a name on this list that particularly jumps out at you guys in a good or a bad way?
2: Uh Steve, I'll let you. Start. I I have sure.
1: an answer, but yeah, sure. Um, you know, I I'm I'm pretty I think interested in uh, Cora. Um, not that not that I know a ton about him. I didn't even know he was the Astros bench coach until maybe like two three weeks ago. Um, so you know that's that's probably not a great start. But um, you know I I've you know read some things about him that he's he's you know he's very in, into you know, analytics. He works for the Astros, which is, you know, one of the most analytical teams in the game today. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's a pretty good sign I would think of his, uh, openness to, you know, at least embracing that side of the game somewhat and understanding it hopefully. Um, and so, you know, and he's, he's a, you know, he's a young guy. He's, um, you know, I think the biggest drawback is, uh, the lack of, you know, managerial experience. Um, You know, he's got this year as a bench coach, but uh, he's, you know, he didn't manage in the minors. He, you know, I think he's done some, I don't know if he did some winter league managing or something like that. Um, But, uh, you know, the lack of experience, I guess, is the biggest concern. But at the same time, you know, I almost prefer that in a way to, um, you know, to guys who have experience and have, you know, washed out, like a, you know, like a Ventura or like a, you know, a Chappelle or somebody like that. Um, so, you know, I mean, this a, a year from now, they could pick Alex Cora and he could be, a you know, a train wreck and, you know, looks really bad. Um, but, you know, I think at this point, I'd rather see them go, um, you know, some, some more, more off the board, which I think Cora, um, at least among this group, uh, would would represent uh, in this case,
2: um, yeah. Chris, what about you? So, it's tough to make too many other points, uh, <laughs> 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 but yeah, my big thoughts are um, saying no to Robin Ventura. Me too. Yep who, yep. who I yeah. admired I admired very much as a Mets player. I did um, Ventura one Yeah. Of my yeah, despite being on the short end of the whole Nolan Ryan thing like that was long before his Mets time. and every Dude was a legitimately great player. Had a knack for hitting grand slams, uh, which is kind of a cool thing, you know? Um, it's one of the cooler things it, to have a knack for in all of baseball. It is.
1: Yeah, oh yeah.
2: Like, oh, the, grand, the bases are loaded? The, okay.
1: Yeah. yeah, and the grand slam single, of course, it's like one of my like greatest early Mets memories, you know, when he hit that. At Grand Slam and got mobbed between, you know, first and yeah. second base by Todd Pratt.
0: And was a hell of a third baseman, too. Oh,
2: yeah, yeah. Yeah, you yeah, know, so just all, all due respect, um, but no, not not as a manager. <laughs> no. I have some
0: friends that are White Sox fans, and they will tell you nightmares about his manager. Yeah, tenure. yeah.
2: I would be curious to see uh, some sort of actual, like, I know that there's more important things to... uh get public opinion on, but I'd like (laughs) to see some actual research on fans of teams who like their own manager. It's (laughs) it's very rare.
0: That's a good point.
2: Um, Cubs fans have to like Madden, right? Yeah, I would think, I would think they do overall.
1: There's gotta be some, you know, subsection. I'm sure that, that hates them. But
0: I I feel like if you're the guy to bring your team out of a huge drought, you're yeah, you're, yeah, unless you're Ozzy Gian, you're uh, you're gonna be liked by your fan base, true,
1: sure,
2: yeah, but uh, but yeah, so no, no Ventura and Cora is the guy who's interesting, um, just because he's not like Garen and Hale, I feel like are just sort of the same, you know, I, I know that there's always going to be some connection, obviously, you know, Sandy Alderson is saying, staying, uh. You know, the team isn't for sale. There's certain things that are sort of institutional, right? Mm -hmm. But it's always odd to me to, like, make a break but then not make a change. Right. You know, like, I feel like Garen and Hale, um, and I know nothing about what Joe McEwing would be like, but but those two guys would just sort of be like they coached with Terry, You know, is it really going to be drastically different? I don't know. You know, I'd I'd rather just bring in a fresh voice. And if uh, Alex Cora signs as manager, I hope he gets a vesting option of some sort. (laughs) (laughs) Well played, sir. Uh, Thank you. Well played. That's... uh...
1: So, does, yeah. uh, Omar Omar, I gets to offer it to him, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> honorary vesting options.
2: <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> um, I will say this about what you just said, Chris. I, I agree that if you're going to make a change, you should make a big change. But I, I was talking to my dad about this yesterday, and, and he actually brought up a really interesting point because I said the same thing. I said, well, why would you hire Terry Collins' bench coach to replace him if you felt – that Collins did a poor job, and he said, "Well, wouldn't he have the best vantage point for what Collins did wrong, and therefore could write the ship?" And I was like, "Oh, that's a really interesting way to put it. I've never thought of that before." Um, that's true.
2: I would love if there's like a uh, Dick Scott or Bob Guerin journal, you know, at <laughs> home. Like, God damn it, Harry did this, and I told him not to do it, and I have to put my feelings down somewhere, but I can't say them to anybody. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, yeah, that I was,
0: I was a very astute point. So thanks, Dad. But, you know, I I, uh, I still agree. I, I would rather see somebody else. Uh, Joe McEwing is one of my favorite Mets of all time. I really enjoy that type of player, you know, um, but I have no idea what that guy would bring to the table as a manager, except a friendship with David Wright, <laughs> which, I, I, to be honest, I think the Wilpons probably care about that more than almost any other factor because they uh, – you know, say what you want about the Wilpons, and I will say lots. They they love David Wright, <laughs> so uh, you know there's that. But I, you know, Cora is a really interesting choice. The guy we haven't talked about at all is Kevin Long, I know Kevin Long has has coached with Terry as well. But Kevin Long is somebody who has an amazing reputation as a pitching co- as a hitting coach, rather. And I mean, I I think you you need to look no further than Daniel Murphy. For the kinds of changes that he can make in a player, by you know by instructing him, and I don't know if I don't know if the Mets would benefit from having that attention to detail across the board, or if they would be taking away from his true talent by having him manage. Uh, do you guys have any strong feelings about
2: Kevin Long? Um, yeah. not not super strong. I, I guess I would just say that. Um... The one odd thing about him coming up in a managerial conversation is just that, and I I think a lot of times it's overemphasized, Um, but it is a part of the job talking to the press every day, right? So one thing that has seemed to have been the case in his tenure as Mets hitting coach is that he's been extremely shielded from the press. So it just seems like an odd thing to have a guy that they really – you know, tried to have not say much, then go to this role where you're saying something every night. Um, mm. So that's my one Kevin Long thought. I don't think that's the most important quality in a manager. It's just a weird, it would be a weird transition. Um, yeah,
1: has I, I get that, especially in New York, you know, where you have to, you know, you have to uh, sort of, uh, you know, own every night pretty much, and, you know, talk to the press every single night, and all these people asking you questions, and, you know, it's definitely an important thing um, that kind of gets overlooked, I
0: think. Do we have any idea why he was so shielded from the press?
2: Uh, I don't. I just know that, you know, it's always, you'd have writers saying that it was, you know, nearly impossible to, like, get him to (laughs) get a quote, you know? Um... But yeah, I don't I don't know why. I don't know if that's like it was his personal preference or or what.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: That's interesting.
0: Um all right. We'll wrap up the show tonight with uh with talking about sort of your, your dream candidate. Now obviously we can't say, you know, Joe Madden, you can't say Terry Francona, you can't say somebody who's who is who is clearly going to be managing their their team again next season? So, is there anybody out there, former manager, uh, coach, someplace uh, that you guys would like to see come in for the Mets? I know Steve, you had at least one you wanted to talk about, right?
1: Yeah, um, could we dig up Earl Weaver? And, <laughs> and no,
4: I'm
1: kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, could uh, I, I? You know, I've heard a lot about really actually two people who um who are former players uh not retired all that long who you know now work in front offices um either uh uh, gabe kapler with with the uh, dodgers i think he's their farm coordinator now or uh john baker the former catcher with the marlins uh he's a he's some sort of assistant i don't know to the gm or something like that with the cubs um But both of those guys are supposedly considered very uh, strong, potentially strong future managerial prospects. Um, And, you know, they're both on, you know, definitely on the younger side. Um, I I don't know their exact ages, but I guess late 30s, or early 40s. Um, And, uh, you know, they're both uh, analytical types. And, uh, you know, they they, obviously sort of like Quora. They're, um, you know, very untested. Um, But they're both guys who it seems like at least there's been some chatter that uh, they might be, you know, potential managers someday down the road. Um, And so sort of that that um, sort of, uh, you know, type of guy is another interesting type of guy. I think Cora is is sort of along those lines as well. So, uh, you know, that's a, a decent compromise, I
0: suppose. Chris, anybody for you?
2: Uh, I don't have an actual like, intelligent answer prepared, <laughs> So, but I do. I, I can dream, right? Sure. So my dream candidate is Giancarlo Stanton, player manager.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
4: Bring it back.
2: Uh,
0: I, I have a feeling you're going to have to pry him out of Jeet's cold dead hands.
2: Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. That... Uh, I'm mostly curious to see whether or not the Marlins just turned into the triple A team for the Yankees.
0: <laughs> that's an excellent question
2: yeah. <laughs> uh, and
0: what about you? I don't know if there's anybody that's that's particularly jumping out at me i um you know I, I want the most analytical guy out there, but I'm aware that among players that's not always the most popular position to take, you know they're not necessarily. There aren't all that many players that are like hanging out on Fangraphs, you know, late at night, uh, checking out things. But I think that for the Mets, like you know, we've talked Chris at length about how the Mets don't have a plan for next year. They're not going to spend any money, and how they're likely to be terrible. If that's the case, then they can roll the dice on a young, untested manager who leans on analytics or some other, or has some other perhaps tactical advantage that other managers don't have. And let that guy run wild. Let him try something. My big hope is that it's just not a, uh, it's not a boring choice. And the last thing I'll say is that I, I, I am not saying that it needs to necessarily be a, a hire for this reason. But I really hope that the Mets um, interview some uh, people of color and of Hispanic origin for this uh, job as well. Because there are more than enough old white guys in baseball
2: yeah oh can i throw in one more just one more uh something that you made me think of with the you know if they know that the payroll is going to be terrible and that the team is not going to be i don't know favored uh-huh. to put it nicely <laughs> uh, if they know that going in uh another uh outlandish suggestion uh hand it over to ben Lindbergh and sam miller and let them do the book that they did in <laughs> indie ball at the major league level um you know, just just see what experimental baseball can look like. Yeah, I love I love that book. I I, I would love to have them do that. I agree. I would love avant garde. You know, just things things that even if you went like to the extreme with basic stuff like shifting and lineup construction and all that, you would like you you'd drive Keith insane. <laughs> but if you I, know it's going to be a bad season. I would love to just go all out and and just do the weirdest things you can do and just I don't know generate some very entertaining television even if the baseball isn't
1: Gary, uh, Gary Cohen would uh, would uh, want to wring somebody's neck by I, uh, <laughs> I, <may>, I think <laughs>
0: I I wonder if so, so let's let's just let's pretend right they they do hire you know the most the most stat driven guy and they start doing crazy shifts and putting power hitters in the first and second spots in the lineup and they do all the things that sort of Gary and uh, and Keith lament on a nightly basis. Let's pretend it works. It just utterly works. Will they ever admit that it's working, or will they just choose to not talk about that aspect of the game?
5: Uh
2: I would say the latter. Yeah. <laughs>
1: it'll be something else that you know the, oh they just had a these guys uh, had great years and I don't know
2: something else
0: great veteran <laughs> leadership,
2: yeah, yeah, like Aaron judge hit second last night, I think for the Yankees, yeah. right, so that's sort of an example of of that um and unfortunately it worked out well
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh I'm not bitter. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> uh I, I,
0: I saw an amazing tweet today and I believe both of you gentlemen watched the rest of development, correct? Yes. Uh yep. Yeah. Somebody said yeah. that it's incredible that Aaron Judge hit fifty two home runs and there's not one decent my name is Judge GIF out there. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, I don't know if if I wrote for Pinstripe Alley, that would be my headline like every night. Yeah,
0: Like mock-trialled with uh, with a judge, you know, or Judge A, or uh, you know, right? It'd be, it'd be a thousand of them. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, well, Mets. Uh, I, I guess we should we should probably say it's likely to not have a, a manager announced until November. That's probably the most likely scenario, um, but certainly ahead of the winter meetings and and that sort of thing, you know, teams like to have a manager in place. So um, it shouldn't be too long before we have an answer to this question, and I'm sure we'll be hearing certain people eliminated from the consideration, you know, within the next couple of weeks, if not couple of days. So uh, you know, get used to the rumors, folks, and. Um, We'll be back to talk about whoever the Mets manager is when that happens.
3: The Mets are in the process of finding the 21st manager in franchise history. So where does the latest manager, Terry Collins, rank in our top five list? Well, he comes in at number five. Did he overuse veterans and misuse youngsters? Absolutely. Did he mismanage a bullpen to an extraordinary degree? Of course. But the longest tenured skipper oversaw back-to-back playoff appearances and a National League pennant in 2015. The smear campaign that ran at the end of his seven-year run should not diminish the fact that he kept a relatively tranquil clubhouse that could have gone unstable many times. It was certainly time for a change, but Terry Collins proved he was much more than just a placeholder. At number 4, Willie Randolph. Entering 2005 with a brand new look, intent to erase the dreadfulness of three straight seasons below mediocrity, Omar Minaya went about hiring someone well-versed in New York baseball. The Mets immediately improved under Willie Randolph's guidance, improving by 12 wins in 05. Then, of course, came 97 victories and the 2006 NLE's title. Narrowing down to bare-bones measurements, Willie was 49 games above 500, but each triumph and failure is never equal. Two defeats stand out above everything else, and ultimately led to his undoing. Game 7 of the 06 NLCS to underdog St. Louis elicited disappointment. The 2007 regular season finale, to cap the Mets' historic fall from first place, provoked anger and frustration. The captain of a ship rarely survives a capsizing of that magnitude. Yet Willie was left to dangle in the aftermath until Mania gave him a vote of confidence weeks later. That small measure of assurance waned when the Mets got 2008 off to a wobbly start. Failing to show any mark of consistency and losing faith in his players, Randall's fate was sealed by early June. Getting a 3.15 a.m. axe in the middle of a West Coast swing, though, was unwarranted. At number three, Bobby Valentine. When he arrived after success at Triple A Tidewater, the Mets were in the middle of a letdown in 1996. Then came 1997, and the team, without much in the way of a superstar, won 18 more games than the previous season. When they did get a superstar, Mike Piazza, the Mets began to share the spotlight with a Yankee team in the middle of a dynasty. Of course, Valentine's antics and bickering with the media, his GM, and his own players kept the buzz loud as well. Bobby V. rubbed many the wrong way, but he won. He guided the Mets to their first consecutive playoff appearances, including the National League pennant in 2000. Now on to number two, Davey Johnson. He was already indirectly involved in Mets history before he even joined the organization in 1981. The fly ball that landed in the glove of Cleon Jones was thrown by Jerry Kuzman and came off the bat of Johnson, one of many formidable hitters on an Orioles team that was humbled in New York. But Johnson never understood the meaning of being humble. He held the same confidence that he had in his players. After 90 wins in his first year of 1984, 98 more in 1985, it all came together with 108 wins and the World Championship in 1986. Considering the talent he had in place and the expectations that came with it, he should have added to his one fall classic appearance and two division titles. Still, Davey is the winningest manager in franchise history and he should be recognized for always keeping the team in contention during his tenure. Now for the number one manager in Mets history. It's the man who led the team to its first world championship. The leader of the Miracle Mets, Gil Hodges. Upon his hiring prior to 1968, the entire direction of this woebegone franchise changed. From 73 and 89 in 1968, they made the most amazing of improvements in 1969. By utilizing all his players on his roster to their maximum ability, and by getting players to buy in to his demands, the Mets put together a 100 victories, the National League East title, the National League Championship, and of course, a World Series triumph over Baltimore. He earned the reverence of so many of those 69 Mets, Jerry Kuzman, Bud Harrelson, Cleon Jones, and Tom Seaver especially. One writer described the players' feelings towards Hodges as, quote, just this side of worship. That's all for this list. I'm Brian Wright. You can follow me on Twitter, at wright 86
4: Steve Saipa, and I'm back this week with something a little bit lighter than last week. I'm going to be talking about one of my favorite baseball topics, which is the draft. Obviously, now that the season is over, uh, we will start looking forward to the 2018 season and the 2018 draft. The Mets ended the 2017 season with a 70 92 record, which means that they're going to be picking sixth overall in the draft. Only the Tigers, Giants, Phillies, White Sox, and Reds, in that order, are going to be picking before the Mets. So, in their 50-year history, the Mets have actually selected 6th overall only twice. Once in 1975, and then once in 1997. So, in '97, they used their 6th overall draft pick and selected Jeff Getz, a left-handed pitcher. In 1998, he was ranked the 96th top prospect in baseball by Baseball America... But he never got a chance to climb up the Mets' system because he was used as a trade ship. Along with Ed Yarnall and Preston Wilson, he was traded to Florida in exchange for Mike Piazza. Uh, His career stagnated in Florida because of a shoulder injury. And he had a couple more up and down years with them and then the Yankees before basically winding up out of professional baseball altogether. Uh, He played in the Indies for a year or two. And according to his LinkedIn page, he's been a consultant and speaker for the Achievement Institute since 2009. Their other pick, Butch Benton, was selected in 1975, and his career was marginally better. He had a few solid seasons as a halfway decent hitting catcher in the minors, and he made his MLB debut as a September call-up in 1978. His bat never really developed And as a result, he never really factored into the Mets' plans, and he only got into 12 more games with them at the MLB level. Just before the 1981 season, he was traded at the Cubs for cash considerations, and things really didn't change much for him either. Uh, he, He got into a handful of games, MLB games, but he was mostly just minor league filler with them, and eventually he was traded to the Expos in exchange for future Mets manager Jerry Manuel. He filed for minor league free agency and signed with Detroit, and then with Cleveland, uh, where he got a few more major league at-bats. But he found himself out of professional baseball after a stint with Cleveland in 1985. Uh, he attempted a comeback in 1991 when he signed to Detroit as a minor league free agent. But he only played in a handful of games uh, with Toledo. And eventually he was released and retired. Since the mid-2000s, he's been involved in golf. He actually became a PGA professional golfer in 2007. And he's been uh, managing golf operations in a variety of golf clubs down there, most recently at the Black Bear Golf Club in Eustis, Florida. So, if anyone is in the neighborhood and is interested in golf, go to the Black Bear Golf Club and pay Butch Benton a visit. So, is the third time a charm? Uh, Will the Mets snap their streak of busts with the sixth pick this year? or is the eventual 2018 pick and have a similar career like the 97 and 75 picks. Keep in mind that this, a lot, you know, a, a lot could happen between now and next June, but the top portion of the 2018 draft class is pretty talented, so maybe 2018 is the year. So, there's pretty much no real way to make any kind of guess right now as to who the Mets might pick, but that's not going to stop me because I have too much fun with this stuff, which is kind of weird, but whatever. So based on the guys that are considered the cream of the crop right now, and are in that 5-10 to 10 range right now, I'm going to throw out a few names. But remember, guys can shoot up the lists, guys can fold down the lists when the season starts in February. But for the time being, here's a few names that Mark Jamuda, the Mets scouting director, might be considering. Back in 2015, the Mets drafted Prep Southpaw Shane McCallaghan in the 26th round out of Cape Coral High School. And though he didn't sign and went to the University of South Florida instead, maybe he tried again. I mean, the same thing happened two years ago with Anthony Kay, who was drafted in the 28th round of the 2013 draft, and then was drafted again uh, with their second first round pick in 2016. So that kind of thing does happen. If a team researches a player and they like him, if he's not available the first time, they might go after him a second time. McCallahan... Had Tommy John surgery in 2016, so there's definitely some injury concerns there. But he did get back on the mound this season, this past season, and he was as good as he was back when he was in high school. Uh, he made 15 starts and posted a 3.20 ERA in 76 innings, allowing 48 hits, walking 36, and striking out 104. McCallahan has an athletic pitching frame. He's about six two and weighs 175 pounds. So there's still some projection in there. Uh, he has an electric fastball, thanks to a really fast, quick arm. And because of that projection, there's there's reason to believe that his fastball might get even better. Um, right now, it sits in the mid nineties, about ninety three to ninety six, and he's able to locate it anywhere, including the inside half of the plate against right-handers, which is a little ballsy for a college kid. Sometimes he has to wait a, a little bit to figure out where his best release point is, and throwing in or two without his best commands, but when it clicks his command is fine. His changeup, same thing. Sometimes he needs to throw it a little bit to get a feel for how the pitch is working and where exactly his best release point is. But when he's on, it's a quality offering with above average potential. Uh, he throws it with the same arm speed as his fastball. it uh, sits in the high eighties, which is about five to ten miles per hour slower than his fastball, and it has late fade. His third pitch, his slider, is still developing, but it shows some promise, and it looks like it'll be a quality third pitch as long as he's able to tighten it up a bit and give it a sharper break, as opposed to not staying on top of it and letting it get loopy. Another left-handed pitcher that the Mets might be looking at is Connor Pilkington, a big guy out of Mississippi State, in 108 innings This past season, he posted a 3.08 ERA, allowing 76 hits, walking 47, and striking out 111. At 6'3", 210 pounds, he has a pretty ideal pitching frame, but he's pretty much physically mature, so there might not be too much projection left. But, with everything that he throws, you might not need projection. His fastball sits in the low mid-90s. And it's a really effortless, easy load of mid-90s. Uh, he could generally command both halves of the plate. He could make his fastball run. He could make his fastball cut. And then he pairs the fastball with a curveball and a changeup. Uh, the curve of, is a better of the two pitches. It sits 75-80 to 80 with 11-7 break and gets good spin, which is why it has the potential to be an above-average pitch with a few more refinements. Uh, The biggest thing that Pilkington has to work on right now is his control. There's a lot of movement in his delivery, and he throws crossfire. So his release point just kind of gets jumbled sometimes, and that affects his control. Since he's an aggressive pitcher and goes right after hitters, uh, his ability to execute and hit his spots is especially important. So if Chimuta wants to stick with pitching, but wants to go with a right-hander, Casey Mize could be the guy. Uh, He was one of Auburn's two aces last year, along with Keegan Thompson, uh, who was drafted by the Cubs in the third round. And he posted a 2.04 ERA in 83.2 innings, allowing 66 hits, walking 9, and striking out 109. So the righty wasn't necessarily thought of as a top-flight talent in his freshman year. But he grew into his 6'3", 200-pound frame, and he showed a massive jump in his secondary stuff between 2016 and 2017. His fastball, it sits in the mid-90s, and since his delivery is simple, loose, and easy, he has the ability to ramp it up whenever he wants and just blow it by hitters with upper 90s heat. Uh, His changeup comes out of his hand like his fastball, but it drops off the table like a splitter, uh, ranging from about 80 to 85 miles per hour or so which is about 10 to 50 miles differential from his fastball. Um, it's pretty much one of the reasons why Mize has so much helium. Um, in the past, he wasn't really able to throw it for you know strikes in the strike zone and basically just used it as a pitch to get guys to go fishing. But this season, he's been able to throw it in the strike zone and outside of it, which in turn generated a lot of weak contact and swings and misses. Uh, his slider, which is his second secondary pitch, uh, sits in the low mid-80s and gets late down with a bite. And it was a bit loopier in his freshman year, but this season he tightened it up a bit. So Mize could command all three of his pitches, and while he did only walk eight batters in 83.2 innings, he isn't necessarily a control artist. He was just really amazing at finishing up batters, if that makes sense. Um, he basically... Struck out batters when he could, or let themselves get themselves out, let them get themselves out before letting them get deep into counts where they could work the walk. So, now if the Mets are interested in adding a high level hitter to the mix, since the system is a bit lacking in that regard, uh, there's a power hitting first baseman named Luke that the team could turn to, and the Mets have had some success with power hitting first baseman named Luke in the last couple of years. Luke and Baker, he started off his collegiate career as a pitcher at Texas Christian University, and while he wasn't all bad as a pitcher, uh, it became apparent that his bat needed to get in the lineup more often. Since he hit 379, 483, 577 with 11 home runs in 67 games. So coach uh, Jim Slosnagel did just that. He moved Baker over to first. And Baker responded by having another big season, though it was cut short by a broken arm in May. In 47 games, Big Luke hit 317, 454, 528 with 11 home runs. So, if you couldn't imagine him being this kind of behemoth because of those power numbers, he is a huge guy, standing 6'4 and weighing 265 pounds. He doesn't exactly have a plus bat speed, but when you're sixty five pounds, when you make contact, you make contact. Um, he's not a guy that goes out there without a plan swinging wildly, either. He has a good eye and he has solid play discipline. He actually walked more than he struck out in both of his first two seasons at uh, Texas Christian. His biggest weakness right now is being a little bit vulnerable to stuff in the inner half. But the same can be said of pretty much every slugger, um... That in his defense, but you don't draft six foot four, two sixty five pound sluggers for their defense. So another guy is Seth Beer, who is an outfielder from Clemson. He had an absolutely monster season in his freshman year, hitting three sixty nine, five thirty five, seven hundred, with eighteen homers. And he followed it up in his sophomore year with a two ninety eight, four 606 line with sixteen homers, which is Obviously not as good as his freshman year, but still pretty damn good. Power is his obvious uh, calling card. And he generates that with good bat speed and a swing that really channels his lower half. And if you look at the guy, his legs look like tree trunks. The biggest thing with him is that he's known for being a poor defensive outfielder and might eventually have to play first base or even DH. But another thing about him is that he's actually going to be a few months younger than some of his contemporaries since he graduated high school early and enrolled at Clemson a semester early instead of in January instead of September. So you'll notice that all those guys are college kids. Obviously, there's a bunch of really high, highly touted high school kids that'll be eligible for the draft. But... Prep players are a lot more volatile than college players They're less developed, they're facing lesser competition A lot of them are going to change Positions There's stuff like college commitments and buyouts To keep in mind So there's so much in the air that I'm not even going to Bother talking about them But obviously the Mets could Decide to pick a High school player So I'm Steve Seipa And that is a way too early 2018 draft preview
5: Hi, this is Aaron York for Mason Avenue Audio, and for uh, this week's episode, we've got a lot of lot of news to get through because the Mets made a lot of moves in their coaching staff. It looks like the beginning of a new era, although Sandy Alderson is definitely sticking around uh, the new era because cause Terry Collins is no longer the Mets manager, and we don't know who's going to replace him yet but the, the coaching staff will probably have a lot of new faces because we know that the hitting coach, Kevin Long, and assistant hitting coach, Pat Rossler, are sticking around. Those guys did a pretty good job. I think the Mets hit a little better than we, we thought they would this year, especially considering all the injuries. Michael Conforto uh, seemed to, to take some steps towards becoming a, a consistently pretty great hitter, although he shockingly dislocated his shoulder and it caused him to miss uh. This amount around the last two months or so, and uh, Ioana Cespedes continues to be a great hitter. Curtis Granderson, Jay Bruce, both, uh, well, Granderson overcome a very slow start to become a player worthy of trading, and Bruce was, was pretty solid for uh, the, his entire Mets tenure this year, unlike last year when he was traded over from the Reds and really didn't do much of anything, so it's good to see him improve and get traded away, so... You have to praise what Long and Rossler were able to do with this team, and certainly with Brandon Nimmo, uh, it'd be nice to see him hit for a little more power, but his approach and the way he takes walks should earn him at least some sort of role at the big league level, whether that's as a starter or as a reserve player. That really depends on what the Mets depend to do decide to do in free agency this winter. But uh, but the, I think the biggest headline was Dan Worthen getting getting uh, released. The Mets are not going to bring him back. Their Mets are not going to bring back their pitching coach, who before this year was thought to be one of the best pitching coaches in the majors. He had the Worthen slider. And we were, the Mets were bringing up all these great pitchers like Noah Syndergaard. And even Rafael Montero looked decent this year. The problem is a lot of pitchers got hurt this year, Matt, Matt Harvey's fall from grace probably being the most the most notable, and Noah Syndergaard getting hurt, although a lot of people think that is the fault of Mike Barwis. We'll, we'll get to him later, and we'll get to the training staff later, but it is pretty shocking to see Dan Worthen fall from grace. The, the pitching staff seem to like him. I don't know exactly how much he has to do with the bullpen. The bullpen was disappointing. Yaros yeah, Familia just never got on track this year. But uh, a lot of people think that's Terry Collins and his bullpen management and him just not getting these guys enough rest. Although Addison Reed, since he came to Mets, was a great success story for them. It's it's surprising. Maybe it was just all these injuries. They thought uh, it was because of the Worthen slider. Maybe the Mets are just looking to move in a different direction. The great uh, race pitching coach Jim Hickey uh, is now available after... It, after him and the Rays parted ways, so that could be a guy on New York's radar as they look to replace pitching coach that uh, that was considered a pretty great pitching coach and who had a lot of success with the young arms that the Mets brought up, it, you know, two years ago in 2015. You would have thought Dan Worthen's here to stay for an for for a long period of time, but it hasn't worked out that way. Even if. Uh, the injuries suffered by the staff aren't his fault. So I said we get to the training staff, Ray Ramirez has been let go. He's been with the team for 10 years and the Mets finally released him. Not sure if it's because the fans were pushing for it, but the fans were pushing for it. They have been pushing for it ever since the rash of injuries 2009 and the injuries haven't slowed down that much. Since then, there's always a thing with the Mets and players getting hurt, and and fans wondering if it's more than a coincidence and looking for someone to blame, and I don't know if Ray Ramirez is the guy to blame. I don't know if anyone can know for sure, but he is now gone, so there will have to be a new scapegoat for this team, and we were talking about Mike Barwis. Mike Barwis is still around, and and he was the guy who bulked up Noah Syndergaard and Ioannis Cespedes, so it, it might have been his training program that did that, but uh, but if you believe that those guys put on too much muscle, you might be looking at Barwis as the guy behind the injuries, but it's probably a combination of things, there's probably no one reason why the Mets continue to get hurt and why this was a, an especially bad, bad year for injuries, but... Barwis might have... He has a lot to do with the team's conditioning in the offseason. So the fact that he's still around, maybe he is the next guy to take a fall. If the Mets can't stay healthy next year, it will be interesting to see how things go. Although, just from normal regression and probability, the Mets are probably going to be a healthier team next year. They're probably not going to lose most of their starting rotation injury. At least we hope not. So that's good. But... But uh, and uh, the rest of the Mets staff is is pretty much dependent on if whoever the new manager is wants to keep them around. Uh, that that includes Tom Goodwin and the first base coach and uh, bench coach Dick Scott and Tom Goodwin the uh, Tom Goodwin is the first base coach. Ricky Bonas is the bullpen coach, so he might also stick around. We don't know yet. And the one guy under contract is Glenn Sherlock, the third base coach who. Looked like he was making some pretty bad decisions this year. So that's interesting, although Sherlock didn't have a great impact on on the team's win-loss record. So we'll have to trust that he is good to go for 2018. But the one thing we're looking for, we're looking for a new pitching coach for the Mets and a new manager. And those are going to be two of the biggest headlines this offseason when the Mets do make a decision in that regard it is going to be a big deal so keep your eyes out on that it should be a very eventful offseason for the Mets even if they don't spend a lot in free agency but we uh, we hope they make some moves cuz this team still has some talent and still and we we saw with the Twins anyone can make a run so so uh, the offseason should be should be exciting let's have at it let's go Mets this has been Aaron York for Amazing Avenue Audio
0: Well, folks, that does it for another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. Thank you so much for listening. We truly appreciate it. We hope you stick with us throughout this entire off season because we're going to have some fun, I hope. Uh, as always, you can email the show podcast at AmazingAvenueAudio.com. We did have an email this week but didn't fit into our managerial discussion, so we'll do that next week. But we'd love a few more. So podcast at AmazingAvenueAudio.com. You can find all of us at AmazingAvenue.com which I still think is the best Mets website on the internet, even though I am a writer for it and I uh, possibly am biased. I felt it was the best Mets site on the internet before I wrote for it. So I'm going to continue that belief. It's the best. And you can find us all at AmazonAvenue.com, or you can find Amazing Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Amazon Avenue. You can find the show at blogtalkradio.com, at Apple Podcasts, at Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. But please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We really do appreciate that. And you can follow all of us on Twitter. I am at Brian Needs Chris is at Chris McShane. Steve Schreiber is at s Schreiber 13 um, Steve Saipa is at Steve Saipa. Aaron York is at Aaron P. York. And Brian Wright is at BrianWright86. Well, next time we talk, we'll know who the wildcard teams are. We'll know all sorts of other interesting postseason business. We probably won't have any real Mets news, but that's okay. And uh, hope you join us next time right here on Amazing Avenue Audio. So until then, let's go Mets.